Well, if you'll take a copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our series on this fantastic text, we would remind you that of the Philippian challenge to read the whole book out loud, uh, or loud once a week, uh, it'll take you about 10 minutes. And, um, you know, the blessing is that I've, as I've done that and I come to each text each week to prepare, I just know it really well because I've been living it each week. And so I would encourage you to, um, to do the same so that you might be prepared, uh, be armored up to fight the evil one, but also to come prepared uh, to worship the Lord each Lord's day. Um, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand. Lord, that you would bring truth into our lives and that we would see Jesus more clearly. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, December 6th, 1941. It was a day like any other. Any other pre-World War II day, at least. The, um, the storm clouds of war were getting closer and perhaps a little nearer with every day. But you know, on this day, December 6th, um, the consensus of America was that we should not go to war with Japan or Europe, or rather, uh, Nazi Germany. We had been in a war, 1917, 1918, known as the Great War, the, end, the war to end all wars, but it turned out it didn't end all wars. The bloodshed was horrific, and we didn't really want to get involved in fighting someone else's battle. So all in all, the American people were against going to war. Two days later, however, December the 8th, 1941, a Monday, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our president, stood before a joint session of Congress delivering perhaps one of the most famous um, speeches ever given, a short one at that. Um, and we went from pursuing zealously trying to stay out of the war to zealously pursuing the defeat and the destruction of Japan. And soon later when Germany would declare war on us as well as, as we would pursue their destruction as well. What, what changed? One day everybody's against, zealously pursuing peace, zealously pursuing keeping our heads in the sand. And then two days later something has changed drastically. And now America is geared up, zealously pursuing the destruction of her enemies. Well, of course you know. 
December the 7th, 1941, a Sunday, Pearl Harbor Day, 75 years ago this year, the Army Air Force and the Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, were um, almost entirely obliterated with very few losses on the Japanese side. We had been thrown into war. Something had to change drastically in order for our perspective as Americans to change from, from such a degree on one side to such a degree on the other. To zealously pursue peace, to zealously pursuing the destruction of our enemies. You know, the opposite is what happened to Paul, right? He was zealously pursuing the destruction of the church. We, we find a key word in Philippians chapter 3, not in our text, but last week's text, where we find where Paul is described as a persecutor of the church. This word, to persecute, means to zealously pursue, and it's the same word that appears in our text this morning as well. This time, he's not zealously pursuing the destruction of the church. He's zealously pursuing, pursuing the Lord in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To go from someone who is seeking to destroy the church to another, to, to a person who is seeking to build it up. To seek the expansion of God's kingdom that, that just not long ago before he was looking to destroy. What happened? What, what could have happened in his life to change it to such a drastic degree? Well, the proclamation of the gospel. The very savior that, whom he was seeking to destroy his church was the very savior who died for him on the cross, paying for the penalty of his seeking to stone and call off to, to, to jail those who wanted to seek the Lord. He was called to zealously pursue the Lord with dogged termination. You know, Paul got hold of, or excuse me, the Lord got hold of Paul and it changed his life. Now, Paul had quite a past, didn't he? He had quite a past that he was not proud of. But that once the Lord got hold of him, it all changed. Now, the past was still his past, but it had been forgiven of him uh, on the cross. The, the Lord had paid the, the penalty for his sins. And now he was called not just to leave the past, to pr- pursue the Lord. What about us? Are there things in our own past that dog us down? That perhaps we feel like zealously pursue us in the wee hours of the morning? They may not be pre-conversion like Paul. Are there past successes that we rely on, that we rejoice in so much with nostalgia that, that we forget to keep moving on? Or the things that bring us shame and guilt, the things that bring us trouble when we bring them to mind. Paul certainly had these things. And yet he tells us this morning, the Lord tells us this morning, they were to forget the things that lie behind us and strain on towards what lies ahead of us. And do you know what lies ahead of us? Glory. The expansion of God's kingdom knowing the Lord more and more every day and being changed, becoming more and more like him. See, Paul in his life was what Schaefer calls a a glorious ruin. This is our lives as well, isn't it? 
See, the Philippians were facing false teachers who were saying that it, you could be perfect. If you just added on, tacked on to the finished gospel of the Lord, that if you just did X, Y, and Z, then you could be perfected. That you could know in this life total perfection. For them, it was obeying the, the moral law, the law of Moses, circumcision especially. But Paul says, look, that system's bankrupt. It's Jesus and Jesus only. See, his life is a glorious ruin just like ours. We see the glorious bit here, verse 12b, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. For the Christian, we, we live a, a life of tension. For On the one hand, we have been declared to be righteous, we've been declared to be holy, We've been made right with God, but the tension comes in that, that each and every day, each one of us faces temptation in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And we fail a lot, don't we, if we're honest. In fact, as we grow and grow and grow more and more in Christ and become more and more like him, we actually see that we're, we're greater sinners than we ever realized. And so the tension in the Christian life actually grows as you grow in Christ. You see just how far off from the mark we really are. But we've been declared to be his. I love this. Verse 12b, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We all have within us the innate desire to belong, don't we? To belong to somebody. You know, we all have had special stuffed animals in our lives. Uh, mine was drowsy. Uh, it was a stuffed basset hound that's about this long. I know that because I saw him last night. Thomas sleeps with him now. But ask Thomas whose dog that is. He won't say it's his. <laughs> he knows it's mine. It's still mine. It belongs to me. When I was four years old, I, I was curious about what a, a rotating wheel of a golf cart looked like while in motion. And next thing I know, I was in the hospital with a concussion. And my parents showed up with a, a nice stuffed animal, a basset hound, whom I named Drowsy. And um, I loved that dog. Why? Because it was mine. It belonged to me. In, in, our, in our lives of tension as, as Christians, we belong to the Lord. In, in lives which are increasingly more lonely, even in the midst of social media, in, in lives that are less and less connected, even though we are so connected with technology, it's a blessing to remember that we belong to somebody. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the Lord. Now, the false teachers in Philippi were teaching a, a heresy, we think, that, that would have called the Philippians to call into question their belongingness. You know, sure, you're Jesus's, but, but you're really Jesus's if you do good, if you do good things, if you obey the law well. And only then will he really love you. But Paul knows this is a bankrupt system. He said, look, Christ has made me his own. He has obtained me. He has bought me. He has purchased me. He has named me. I am his younger brother. I am a son of the king. I belong to someone important. There's other good news as we live in the lives of tension. 
Verse 16, we read, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now the Greek's here tough. Greek is tough here. And basically it means to live a life that is according to the definition of who we already are, to the rule that, that we have had set before us. But what have we attained? We have attained God's love. We have attained his forgiveness, not because of anything in us, not that we could do, but because Christ has freely given it to us and saved us of his own accord, of his own effort for his own glory. He has made us his own and he has given us his righteousness. But here's the tension. This text is full of tension. Because we are a glorious room, we are glorious, we've been declared to be glorious, we are the Lord's, we belong to him, we are loved, we are loved more than we ever could know. But our lives are still a mess, aren't they? We really stop pretending and allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves and others. Our lives are messy. Paul's was messy. We read this in verse 12a. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Verse 13a. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. He's talking about perfection here. He's talking about what happens only when Christ comes back or calls us home, one or the other. Can you imagine how the Philippians would have felt if Paul said, I've made it? I'm actually perfect. I don't know about y'all, but I've finally arrived. Meanwhile, the Philippians are struggling just to put one foot in front of the other in the Christian walk, struggling to believe the gospel, struggling to put to, put to death lies of the past, struggling to put to past shame in their, of what they've done in the past. It would have done ruin to them if Paul had pretended to be perfect. Instead of bringing hope to their situation, it would have brought despair. There is a difference between shame and guilt. Do you know this? Guilt is a legal term which refers to when I do something wrong, I am guilty. It is right to feel guilty when we sin, although there's a a false guilt that continues when we have received forgiveness of the Lord that we must all struggle with, I think, at some times. But shame is not that um, we have done wrong, but that we are wrong. It's like when we raise our kids, if we, instead of telling them you did something wrong, you say you're a terrible kid and you'll never do anything right. That's what shame feels like. But certainly there are parts of all of our stories in which shame plays a part. It is a common thread throughout our lives. It would have brought shame to the Philippians if they had felt as if their mentor, their true shepherd, or their um, pastor, their immediate pastor, the apostle Paul, said he was perfect. And they would look at their lives and say, man, what, what's wrong with me? But here's the thing, Christ on the cross, he didn't deal just with our guilt, did he? He dealt with our shame. He dealt with the the guilt, the penalty due, due for our sin. But do you remember what he was wearing on the cross? Nothing. Talk about shame. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Luke 16, 15. Luke 15, when we read of... um, the return of the younger son who's gone. He's spent all of his money and he's been doing some unhelpful things. Parents read between the lines as, as uh, he returns and he thinks, if I can just convince my father to let me be one of his hired servants. What does he do? The father says, here's my son. 
Here's my son. Bring a robe. That's my robe. Bring a sandals. Here's my ring. Kill the fattened calf. He doesn't let him wallow in his shame. He doesn't shame his son. His son is returned and is seeking forgiveness. And he says, this is my son. And so too, the Lord has healed not only our guilt, but also our shame. You know, the best antidote for shame is to tell our stories. Someone told me that this week that I was meeting with who was hearing my story. And he was right. This is a mark of a true believer, a mature believer. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. You know, the interesting thing that as we live these lives of tension as believers is that as we grow in Christ, we actually realize that we're not better, but that we're worse. Because a, a, a low view of sin leads to a low view of the Savior. And a high view of our sin and how far we've missed the mark leads us to rejoice in the blessing, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. I remember um, about 10 years ago, I used to shoot a good bit. And, you know, if you don't shoot a lot, you lose those skills. And um, I was at a shooting range with my grandfather, and there was a 550-meter target. Now, that's a long way. 550 meters is 1,800 feet, or right at a third of a mile. I was shooting an 8-millimeter surplus Mauser, a, um, a very accurate gun, but with terrible ammunition, open sights. And I thought, I wonder if I can hit that thing. So I started walking it out there and finally I was shooting at a three foot by three foot metal gong and, and finally I put a few rounds on the target. You could hear it, you know, ding after a few seconds down range and I was really excited. I thought I'd shot really well. But you know, the closer you get to it, you realize how far you are from the mark. I was aiming at the middle and I was just right over there on the very edge and right over there on the very edge. So my, my grouping was a good like three feet away from each other. As you get closer to the target, you realize how far you were from the mark. As we get closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see how far we are away from hitting the mark of his honor, glory, and holiness. But the result is not despair. The result is to rejoice. To rejoice in the goodness of our Father and his steadfast love. For while we thought we were always better, he has always known that we are far worse than we could ever imagine. And that just makes his love for us even greater. So Paul is living in this life of tension and he is pastorally telling his recipients there in, in Philippi that I'm not perfect. Don't pretend like I'm perfect. In fact, the only hope I have is because I've been attained by Christ and he has made me his own. But what is Paul's response? Is it therefore then just to sin boldly in a way that would bring dishonor to the Lord to say, you know, it just doesn't matter. God's got me. I can ask for forgiveness later. No. In fact, this very gospel, this great news, this tension that he lives in, it actually spurs him on to, to seek to walk more closely with the Lord than ever. See, now that the end has been attained, he can struggle and he can fight fiercely to become more and more like his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And as he becomes, as he gets to know him, 
He becomes more like him. The image that we see in our text this morning is one of running a race. These words that are, are um, sprinkled throughout our text are, are all race language. Um, press on, strain, goal, prize, obtain. These are all words that would have been used in the context of foot races, which were very popular, especially in Roman colonies like Philippi. Paul strains and presses on towards a goal and a prize. The goal here um, can either refer to a finish line in a foot race or to an archery target. And he seeks this goal. And what is this goal? It is Jesus. Now he has Jesus and Jesus has him. But he seeks to know Jesus more fully. That his knowledge of Christ's love might increase ever more each and every day. And here's the thing that once he knows the Lord better, he becomes more like him. He's changed from the inside out as he pursues this goal of being more and more godly in his life. Do we have that goal? If we were to write down our goals for this year, in the next 10 years in our lives, would we place on there, my goal is to be more like Jesus? It certainly should be. But Jesus must change us from the inside out. Um, Counselor and writer Paul David Tripp loves to use a metaphor about how true holiness comes about. I think I've used it before. I know I have in Sunday school. So there are two ways to have an apple tree in your backyard. And the first is you can go buy an apple tree and plant it in your backyard or, or, or be your own Johnny Appleseed and, and plant seeds in your backyard. And, and several years later, you'll have an apple tree, Lord willing, with apples on it. It's growing up from the inside out. Or you can go to um, Walmart. No, what's, what is it? Honeycrisp. Oh my goodness, these things are fantastic. You go and get Honeycrisp apples and you go and buy a stapler. And you go in your backyard to your weeping willow and you staple those apples right on the weeping willow. Now you have a weeping willow apple tree. That would be really pretty, wouldn't it? And so from the outside, it looks great. It looks like a great apple tree, but we all know that there's no real apple tree in your backyard. In order for us to become more like Jesus, we must know him better and be known by him, become uh, changed from the inside out. So as we relentlessly pursue holiness, we must first relentlessly pursue Jesus. If we want to see change in our lives, yes, fight hard, put up uh, barriers, put up boundaries, do practical things. These are all really important things. Avoid temptation, avoid places that you know, changing your people, places and things, as they say. These are great, but lasting change will only come from knowing the Lord better. And how do we do that? The word, prayer, sacraments, all in the context of God's people. I love this. Um, he is striving and straining for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This can refer to the upward call that he has in his salvation, effectual call to be made, to be made Jesus's. It can also, uh, I think, apply to uh, walking in a way that is worthy of the calling. We see that elsewhere in one of Paul's epistles. They can also uh, um, apply to heaven, to the upward call of going home. But this word strain here is, is a really, really uh, jam-packed word. As one author said, the verb here is very graphic. It pictures the, the runner straining every nerve and muscle as he keeps on running with all his might towards the goal, his hand outstretched to grasp it. Are we seeking to grasp out to Jesus 
Are we that desperate to know him? If we're desperate for holiness, it must begin there. How will he do this? Verse 13 gives us the answer. Brother, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Isn't it great news as believers that this is possible for us? To forget what lies behind? That we are not chained down by our past? We are not chained down by our past uh, successes? You can be chained down by past successes. Or we're not changed, uh, chained down by our past failures either. The image of here is of running a race. And you know, when you're running, it's a terrible idea to look behind you. Um, it doesn't matter how many rocks are on the ground, or how pretty or awful the scenery was behind you. What matters is what's ahead, and you run with all your might. In fact, to look behind you causes you to slow down and to stumble. I hate running. I mean, I just despise it. My father was asking me about some running shoes he'd bought me six years ago, and y'all, they're in great shape. <laughs> but I love to swim. I really like to swim. Now, I haven't figured out a way to look behind you when you're swimming. The only way you can do it is if you stop and turn around. And it causes you to take your, your, your face, your vision off of what's before you. How often do we do that in our own lives? We become so consumed, maybe in a relationship of past failures, past sins. Perhaps in our own fight with sin, we know that shame. We just can't get away from it. Paul certainly could have looked back to his righteous record, quote-unquote righteous record, of when he was a Jew seeking his own righteousness by his works. He could have looked back to past ministry successes for thousands of people had come to know him, know the Lord through him. But think about his sins, too. This man was directly and indirectly responsible for the death of believers in their jailing. I wonder if Satan whispered these things into his ear late at night. What are those things that Satan whispers in your ear late at night? We're enabled by the very gospel that is our salvation to leave those things behind us because Christ has dealt with them. They are no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions of those who love him. And now we can strain on to what is ahead, to know Christ and to know him more greatly. Even as we look one day to that final upward call of Christ as he calls us home, and we will for all of eternity sing of our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, the love which cleanses us, the love um, by which you sent your Son and crushed him on the cross for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to lay aside every weight and every sin that burdens us, Lord, help us to look um, to the prize, to the goal, to the reward of Christ. Lord, give us faithfulness. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.